This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, The Buttery Goodness Part 2. What makes a story grab its audience? Yes, we know why you're here. You're here for the cooking metaphor. (laughs) And it's not going to get any easier this week. Um, (laughs) Now, if you haven't checked out part one, we suggest you do that first because we're not going to re-explain everything that we covered. Um, But a brief recap is the fact that what we're talking about is the things that you can add to your story Mm -hmm. that make it more accessible for a broader audience. Yeah. So last week uh, we dis- we discussed some of the uh, core wounds that you might find in uh, your main characters, which are part of that buttery goodness. Um, this week we're going to look more at the themes. So as we said before, you know, your genre is your recipe, your tropes are your main ingredients. And then, the you know, the buttery goodness tends to be a bit more amorphous than that. It's a bit more nebulous. But it's the stuff that when you add it, you get your, your your target audience, your adjacent audiences, and a broader audience who just love those things in a book will come will, will come to feed, basically. Yeah, they'll smell it from a mile away. So, it's like the milkshake in the yard. Anyway, uh, I'm so sorry. I'm so, so I, sorry. You know, I, I was really just patting myself on the back then, the fact that I did not use the milkshade milkshade the milkshake in the yard the milkshade. I don't know what a milkshake is I've no idea. <laughs> milkshake it's like a milkshake but it's a bit tougher than that yeah it's it's a, it's a bit tougher to be it's honest milkshade critical. milkshade sounds like a poison that you make out of uh, nightshade or something like that yep well there's some inspiration for you, there you um, and the, the wheels have come off our wagon very early on in the episode so sorry about that guys um Anyway, so we are going to delve into the buttery goodness. We're going to give you many, many, many examples. And this is not an exhaustive list, um, as we will reiterate later. Uh, This is just some of the main ones we've noticed. However, a few caveats to start with. It's worth noticing that the universal daydreams or fantasies that add butter to your story are often not terribly PC. They're not politically correct. Um, And they're often the things that we're told that we're not supposed to enjoy. Um, Mm. And, you know, from a certain perspective, people are even right in, in, in sort of, if you applied that to real life, that would be a horrific thing. Um, but they're not, you know, they're not always technically acceptable to certain sections of the reading public. Um, yeah. I, I would posit the idea that some people who really jump on something and say, oh, you can't have that, it's terrible, it's terrible. They tend to be the sort of people who say, oh, Beauty and the Beast is all about uh, Stockholm Syndrome, um, which demonstrates to me that they don't really understand the the process of storytelling yeah um, it, they're the same people who say cinderella's a bad story because she's just waiting for a man to come and save her not recognizing the fundamental aspect which is that it's a story about a girl who is treated horrifically and somehow still manages to stay kind yeah absolutely um so while we're not we are absolutely not saying that some of these examples or even many of them are desirable things yeah they absolutely do add butter to a story and people will keep reading them because these these are the secret daydreams and fantasies that sort of cross genre boundaries and cross cultures 
Um, and we'll explain why we think that is as well. This is a little yeah. bit sort of reader psychology. So we're not saying, yes, this, these things would be great in real life. Um, but people do have rich fantasy inner lives. And that's an important thing. Everybody needs that kind of escapism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, we all, I think we do need to... There's a little bit of gatekeeping, I think, that happens. Yeah, <laughs> so, um, there is. Uh, all right, so with that in mind, let's kind of get into uh, some of the examples. And uh, I will start us off, if that's okay. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to start us off with uh, being forcefully removed from your humdrum everyday life or somewhere you don't belong. So, for example, you see this in fairy tales like Beauty and the Beast, but you also see it in uh, modern fantasy, Harry Potter, um, and, uh, you know, most bully-type romance, fantasy romance, it comes from a desire to run from your responsibilities without actually running away, abdicating the responsibility for that decision. Yeah, I think that's that's a big one, and... You know, if we look at the, the Disney movie, the original animated mm -hmm. classic Beauty and the Beast, um, Belle feels like an oddball. She's an outsider in that town. Yeah. Uh, obviously, she has her responsibilities and things, and she, she does what she's supposed to do, but she's dreaming of something more. She doesn't fit in because she's not content with where she is. That's not a bad position to start off from. Yeah. Um, in storytelling terms. Yes, the fact that she exchanges herself for her father in what what amounts to allegedly a, a kidnapping situation is not is not great. But we're talking fairy tales here. Yeah, um, we are talking fantasy, and I I don't know. I, I've always found it a bit reductive when people say, "Oh, Beauty and the Beast is about Stockholm syndrome," because it's so much more nuanced than that. Yeah, and the thing is that you could talk about it being about Stockholm Syndrome in another way by actually looking at some of the original themes and intentions of, of the original story, which is obviously about preparing young women for marriage and the fact that, you know, once you leave home, you are kind of the uh, the property of your husband and that the moment you accept him, um, you will see him less as a beast, as this kind of foreign sort of influence and and as a man and you know there's lot there's lots to kind of pick apart there but in a lot of sort of more you know so if you're coming at it from that angle then i might be willing to listen but for the most part actually particularly the disney version um you're absolutely right in that this is very much a story about a girl who kind of actually does want an escape and even in the original Belle's situation is not great. She is the one who is doing all of the housework. She's given up a lot. Um, she's very, you know, she has a lot of, she concedes a lot of things for the needs of her father. You know, her, her sisters want expensive gifts. She just wants a rose. And yet yeah. she then ends up living in this glorious castle. Um, you know, she, she gets pretty much whatever she wants. Um, and eventually she kind of, uh, in sort of some of the original um, earlier written versions of it, uh, like de Beaumont's version, for example, you know, she becomes a princess. So, yeah, and it's, I think it's really interesting because I think if you look at the original, she has three elder brothers as well. So she's yeah. the youngest child and it was actually derogue for the youngest daughter to stay home to care for her aging parents. Yeah. Quite often the youngest daughter was, was pretty much doomed to be a spinster because there was no there was no dowry left by the time you got to that point unless you were a very wealthy family 
and you wanted to keep one at home because she was basically your retirement prospect. So, yeah, yeah you might have a really great relationship with your parents or you might have the sort of relationship with your parents where they treat you like a servant. So the whole idea of I'm not going to run away from my responsibilities, yes, my lot's not a great one, but this this is what I've got, um, that's totally understandable. And that's totally relatable today. I mean, how many... I, we've written that, you know, you see it in a lot of bully-type romances and things mm. where, you know, uh, sort of contracted by the billionaire or something. I'm sure that's that's the title of one of them. <laughs> Something with the billionaire. I, I, I don't really read this genre, I've got to say, but I do understand the trope and I understand why this particular slab of butter goes really well in it for a lot of people. Because yeah. if you are a, let, let's just say you're in a committed relationship of some kind and maybe you're the one who does most of the housework at home because that's how you've divided things up and the other person's the main breadwinner. Quite yeah. often that's how it, it happens. Mm-hmm. Um you've got three children under the age of four and you know that you're making dinner for them and, and it's probably not something, you know, at least one of them's going to go, I don't like this, even though they liked it yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, he, your other half is going to come home and it's going to be like, oh, I was hoping we could have some X, Y and Z instead of this tonight. Yeah. And it, it's that whole sort of like, you know, on some level you're not really unappreciated it's just at that moment in time you're not feeling very appreciated and it's a lot of work yeah and it's not very exciting and oh gosh wouldn't it be great if a billionaire swept in abducted you for some unpaid death of your (laughs) your partner or father or whatever and held you captive and subjected you to uh well in the billionaire bully romance type genre lots and lots of very steamy scenes (laughs) yeah it's it's just like a oh this is awful i have to go to nice restaurants with him or oh this is awful i have to watch him he's making me spend thousands of pounds on clothing so that i look right on his arm yeah (laughs) and you can totally understand why um and I think another part of the reason why that kind of fantasy is uh, enjoyable, and I say fantasy both in the sort of the fantastical sense and fantasy as in the I wish this would happen to me sense, is that it removes some of the guilt that people feel about wanting more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in that they say if the, so, oh, we've got this whole steamy kind of romance, we've got this whole sort of, oh, a billionaire thing, but if the main character is sort of unwilling, then what happens is that you as the reader kind of go like, therefore they're preserved from the uglier aspects of things like materialism or things like, you know, if you want to... You see this weirdly in a sort of like a lot of Christian kind of romantic fiction, which yeah. is quite steamy, which is the, oh no, I mustn't, I must stay pure. And if they've got that kind of reluctance, um, then, you know, it's like, great, so I can enjoy this uh, without technic, you know, without it, whilst the character remains pure, as it were, as it were, which I think removes a lot of guilt from the readers so some people might turn around and say this makes me very uncomfortable which i can totally understand because honestly um it's one of those things that makes me quite uncomfortable um but the whole the the reluctant side of things it does make me laugh though because it's just oh how you know oh this is so annoying and i'm like oh no you get to wear nice clothes and eat nice food how awful (laughs) 
and he's absolutely <laughs> mad about you and now yeah. you're gonna have 12 <laughs> orgasms in the next chapter kind of thing <laughs> Yeah, it's like, yeah, life's really, really, it sucks. It really does. Kind of thing. But I absolutely understand why this is an escapism thing. And yep. it doesn't have to be as extreme as the whole billionaire bully romance thing. No. Or even as fantastical as Beauty and the Beast. It can be kind of like a court of mist and fury. Yeah. Whereby she she won't leave because her responsibility is to go through with this wedding. And obviously there's other stuff going on. And yet Resan sweeps in. And abducts her, so takes the decision out of her hand. So she's lily white in terms of guilt all the way through. Yeah, absolutely. And then he's lily white because uh, what happens is that she thought it. She thought that she wanted to escape. Therefore, but because she thought it and didn't try and do it, she's blameless. But because he, she thought it and he reacted, he's also blameless. Well done. <laughs> yeah. But basically, the idea of some alpha male sweeping in and abducting you away like this... Um, you know, it, it, it's why the Hades and Persephone myth is so popular. Yeah, but it's it's quite interesting because it, it makes me also think of things like Forbidden Kingdom or, or is it Forbidden Kingdom? Yeah, I think it's that one where you've got the, the kid, he's being bullied by, you know, others. He escapes. Next thing he knows, he's in ancient China. He gets trained by Jackie Chan and Jet Li, um, <laughs> which, I mean, that's not who they are, but that's who they are, you know what yeah. I mean? Um, and and then he goes back, and he is stronger than ever. I mean, that's that's the the great um, being forcibly removed from humdrum life. Yeah, um, it, that's the isekai, which is very very popular. The the thrown into another world, the portal fantasy, um, which again I think you get in something like Harry Potter as well. Again, I think it's one of the reasons why Harry Potter was so popular is it's portal fantasy but it feels very like very achievable portal fantasy yeah it's a sidestep rather than a complete yeah rift in the space-time continuum isn't it 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 does it it really feels like at any moment you could you know as a kid you could actually get your hogwarts letter you know so yeah definitely okay um well the next one (laughs) this is kind of one which i've leaned on without meaning to but this is this is more butter I guess that um, makes things makes things taste good, but the grouchy, grumpy, snarly beast bully type person really likes you. So this <laughs> this idea that you can tame the savage beast. So yeah, obviously Beauty and the Beast, but also you know this is this is Eleanor's line in The King's Knight. Effectively, <laughs> she's supposed to be a, a marriage of convenience, but she refuses to stay in the shadows. And we've we've said this in a previous episode, but once you get you finally get under Gregory's guard, that's it. You're there. You're you know he will lay down his life for you, kind of yeah. thing. People find that <laughs> he's really he's super ride or die. <laughs> yeah, he really is. Um, so as I've said before, I I didn't really know that that's what I was doing, but that is one of the things that made it popular. And I wouldn't say I was really writing deliberate romance into it they never ever at any point say they love each other but I think it's really quite apparent by about midway through the first book that Gregory's Gregory's already there kind of thing yeah absolutely um the it the whole kind of um the the grouchy grumpy snarly beast kind of uh you know I can tame him this this is an issue again in real life because you've got these people like oh he's bad but I can make him good and yeah. of course, it's very important to recognise that it is nobody's duty in the world to 
make someone else good and that if anyone says you make me uh you make me good stay with me you make me good um that's a bit of a red flag obviously depending on on the context um but i think at its core the the idea this trope and it feeds it a little bit into our next one is the the specialness of the connection um between someone who is usually grouchy uh, or grumpy or snarly because they have been hurt and what they actually need is kindness and understanding um and they have been closed off and they open themselves up to you and i think that that is an appealing quality for everybody it's appealing to feel trusted and to feel um like someone can expose themselves the the most vulnerable parts of themselves to you um it's a special thing which i think we've all felt you know felt very privileged when someone has trusted us with something um which is very important to them yeah um other examples obviously jane eyre pride and prejudice two classic basically (laughs) beauty and the beast retellings yes And I think, weirdly enough, a lot of people kind of like with. So we talked about um, obviously Hades and Persephone in the in the first one, and I think a lot of people who adapt that series, sorry, I say that series, who adapt that myth now, kind of touch on that grouchy, grumpy, snarly beast kind of yeah. character. With Persephone being like, "You're actually a sap, aren't you?" And Hades is like, "No, don't look at me." <laughs> <laughs> That's what I loved about Punderworld. Yeah. <laughs> Well, leave me alone, I'm just doing my job on you, Lord of the Underworld. <laughs> and it's like, you like this girl, don't you? Uh, I don't even know who she is, but she had flowers in her hair. Yes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the next one, um, which, again, you can, and we talked about last week how some of these can kind of mix in with one another and they become very complementary. It's like two flavours, you know, you put it together. Um, like cinnamon and cloves for, you know, pumpkin spice. Um, <laughs> sometimes they just go really well together. And that's the being chosen. Now in romance by the most... Uh, so, so this is in romance, and it's being chosen by the most powerful or the richest suitor. Uh, so again, we've got A Court of Mist and Fury, Resand, the most powerful high lord oh, god it makes my teeth the hurt most the handsome high lord etc um in fantasy by a special destiny or even by an enemy so uh again so with harry potter's that's obviously less romance but harry has been chosen <laughs> chosen by voldemort to by be Vold- his enemy <laughs> it's, it's like kind of like that really is the consolation prize of being chosen isn't it <laughs> I, actually, I choose you harry <laughs> i mean this is something that we'll get into later, but sometimes the um, the the fantastic, you know, the brilliant, there isn't really a downside of being chosen, goes hand in hand with the being chosen for something which isn't that great to be chosen for, like being chosen to be the slayer, comes yeah. with some serious downsides. Yeah. Um, and each are equally appealing to the right audience because it's so different. It's the idea of being singled out as special for some reason. Yeah. And I, I know it's basic of me, but I really do love the chosen one um, idea, the idea of being chosen on on several levels, um, and I think it ties into uh, 
the you know like the soul the soulmate sort of thing yeah we'll get to that which which we will get into yeah a little bit further down the line but yeah but also the being the being chosen by destiny being chosen by a person being chosen um by the gods as a representative i think we all like to imagine the specialness of being chosen because i think we've i think everybody has been in that position where they've been chosen for something that they care about and and you feel like on top of the world you know yeah. or maybe you haven't been chosen but you would like yeah that experience you, you could imagine how it might feel and again in real life you you probably wouldn't sign up for it i mean you wouldn't ever really want some random billionaire to come in I mean you wouldn't want Elon Musk to turn up at your house and say right Madeline I'm abducting you now oh just the idea of him turning up yeah it would be um, that's the thing these things are not great in real life but in fantasy when it's obviously not Elon Musk um, then yeah you can it isn't the whole sort of being chosen by the most powerful richest man kind of thing is supposed to be it's like that's uber butter in romance. Yeah, isn't that? I've just forgot what the title is, but it's a. It, it was a. It's a book, um, after or something like that, uh, where it was based on a on a fan fiction, uh, f- where a, a girl's parents basically sell her to a boy band. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> Um, and uh, it, it started as a fan fiction on Wattpad and became very popular and it now actually has like a, a Netflix adaptation I'm pretty sure um, and yeah to be honest um, as a you know as a fan fiction idea it was like yeah great um, I'd love to be sold kind of to a boy band and basically have what I assume is a harem situation because I've not read or seen it um, but I assume that's what people were enjoying in real life you, you would side eye your parents a lot if they did that yeah i should hope so too mm. okay let's try the next one um this is one where i wince a little bit but i can see why it appeals to people that's the whole servants who are delighted to serve so um you've got the disney beauty and the beast um be our guest that the, they're i mean i can understand why they're happy to serve they've been they've been turned into appliances yeah so their best bet is to to really get behind this this whole romance and help it along. Yeah. Um, but there is also this element of they didn't really have a purpose without somebody being there to serve, and now suddenly they're full of purpose again. Yeah. Um, Cinderella, you've obviously got the mice and birds and things which help her. I mean, you get that in Disney a lot. If you're if you're a lovely young princess, then and you sing, then obviously <laughs> the local vermin will come in and clean house for you. <laughs> But there is something to be said for having a having this, this idea of yeah all the tasks that maybe you don't want to do like the dishes and the laundry and someone coming in and you're not putting them out at all because they love doing it they love just doing it for you. Yeah, that's the thing is that I think you know everybody kind of wants to have that fantasy of oh that's all just it all just gets done for us or oh there's someone who's going to you know the the being served the whole that whole princess fantasy but then I think also a lot of people will like. I hate doing those things. I don't want to be the person who's ordering other people to do those things. But if if the servants are happy with it, if the servants are like, yes, I would, it's an absolute pleasure to do this. No, I genuinely like you. Um, it makes it okay. 
yeah so it, it's that sort of idea and you know sometimes coupled in with some genuine love and loyalty and maybe you've done them a favor and now they're doing exactly what they want to do yeah um, it's that's not one i'm massively comfortable with but i do understand why it's appealing in a fantasy type setting <laughs> yeah um and i think um, realistically there are situations i know just from my own kind of experiences where um you know working for other people or you know sort of towards a boss or or stuff like that or serving other people um is actually a pleasure because it's actually you you feel fulfilled in the work that you're doing um and they they're nice to you and it's it's you know a skill that you have um that can be quite a nice thing it can also be an absolutely awful thing as anyone who's ever worked in any kind of customer service will tell you um so i don't think it's unrealistic to have um characters who you know um are sort of house workers or skilled workers or things like that who like um their boss um or depending on what the era is you know their their if it's like a, they like their lord etc they feel their lord is a just lord etc um and there are people, you know, historically who did just feel, yes, this is kind of, I'm fine with this. I'm happy with the life that I've got. So I don't think it's wrong to write those kinds of characters, but I think considering them as more than kind of background stuff is where is where it kind of starts to matter a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, this isn't really about that this is about no, no, the no, fantasy course. and the fact yes. that this is a universal fantasy yeah but I, just... I i do think that that's how a lot of people are able to maintain or write that fantasy without feeling kind of like they're skirting into that sort of bad era because uh, sorry bad territory because i think a lot of people who are reading that fantasy and then see that suddenly go oh i've worked in customer service and i don't like this <laughs> so i think that's how a lot of people kind of step over it um okay so the next one uh the fixer upper oh my god yes so um <laughs> either someone who sees potential in you or sees potential in someone else um so i think i you can totally totally understand this one which is it's like a you have potential you need training you know the the, the sort of the mental character coming in and saying i'm going to show you how to be the best person or the romantic interest or you know something along those yeah. lines mm, i like it <laughs> i do and again this is one that i kind of included in the king's knife night both in gregory being eleanor that there's a bit at the end of um revolt where gregory asks why eleanor agreed to marry him and she basically says well you're a bit of a fixer-upper but i yeah. kind of enjoy a challenge <laughs> that's essentially what she's saying and yeah, there is an element of that he needed somebody who would stand up to him and bring out the, the softer side. The other side of that is that Gregory saw potential in Cuthbert yeah, and brought him along as well, which ironically also brought out his softer side. I like the roundness of that as in storytelling terms, which is why it stayed in there. Um, I didn't realise it was buttery goodness when I did it. Yeah. Um, and I think... A, a reason why a lot of people like that is that we like the idea of people seeing potential in us. Yeah. We like the idea of someone who sort of sees us not for who we are currently, but who we could be. Um, 
not by being forced but with guidance with attention with care and love yeah definitely and certainly some of my favorite stories are the ones that will will click with me immediately are ones where you've got a not quite perfect main character or a, a very sort of imperfect main character who's a little bit on the untidy side or a little bit on the, the, the not quite desirable side and and somehow there's enough there that you see their potential and when other characters see their potential and the story starts going in that direction where they get to improve um, you... this also comes into another one later down but yeah you know one of my favorite things though about it is that how often it's paired up with the trope of kind of like diy which is that we, we can make you know i'm i'm you're a fixer upper um and part of the fixer-upper is that I'm going to help you. You see this all the time in romantic stories. It's like, oh, I've come to this this new home, but oh my god, my house is falling apart. And the local guy, he's going to help me get all the lights on. He's going to help me fix things up, you know. And he's also, while he's doing that, he's fixing my broken heart. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So some good examples of this. Uh, we, as you said, we, you get it in uh, the King's Knight. You also get it in Uprooted. Yeah, um, I I feel that both of them are kind of fixer-uppers, both of the main characters. Yeah. In different ways. In different ways, yes. <laughs> um, which I think is very healthy. Um, and the Black Magician too, as well, obviously, with, with Sonya. Yes. Okay, next. Uh, right, next one. <laughs> the Wounded Love Interest. This is huge in romance. Mm -hmm. And it often develops into the heal him with your love trope, which I'm not a massive fan of, but um, it exists in tiny buttery themes in many genres. Um, actually, it, in the sense of keep it... I mean, this goes hand in hand with another, another theme later on, but we can't help but enjoy a wounded love interest i'm afraid yeah um even when you're kind of even when it stops starts straying into uncomfortable healing with your love in real life that's a terrible thing that's that's uh no you need to go away and do some work on yourself i'm willing to support you and help you but you need to do the work kind of thing yeah in fantasy terms the the idea of being able to rescue somebody is very appealing yes and i think that's why we're drawn to it so um, again, the, the King's Knight, um, Harker and Blackthorn. If you haven't read that far, then I don't want to spoil it for you, but there is definitely an element of that in there for, for several characters, but one in particular. Yes. <laughs> um, I think you get it with Kieran in Unveiled to a certain extent, but I will say that the thing with Kieran is he has reached a point where he wants to be better than he is. Yeah. Um, as opposed to Lucas, who very much thinks he's perfect as he is. <laughs> Um, I might be talking out of my arse here, but I feel like there's an element in Kestrel, but we can't really talk too much about that. Yeah, but I think you're, from what you can see, you're absolutely right. There is an element of it within Kestrel, but it's obviously very slow. <laughs> well, it's from my perspective. <laughs> um, and, you know, characters like Wolverine. I think this might be why Wolverine was always my favourite X-Men. Mm, yeah, me too. So, yes. Basically, we all love a suffering male main character in need of love. Yep. Yep. We really do. Um, I'm weak for it. And, uh, yeah, that's... <laughs> I, I think also I think also a part of the reason why is that on some levels it 
um, it's nice. The fantasy is I could make someone feel better. But I think on the other side that there's another side of the fantasy, which is that sometimes people associate with the male character um, and what they want is someone else who makes them feel better. So there's yeah. part of that fantasy too. So it's a double-edged sword there, both in that I can make you feel better and I want to be made to feel better. Yeah, definitely. Okay, the next one. Um, the perfect gift. <laughs> I love this um, in the sense of it can't just be a gift giving a random gift giving it can't just be kind of like oh it's the princess's birthday and she got 96 presents or whatever it's got to be something very specific that shows that the person who is giving the gift really understands and appreciates the person they're giving the gift to yeah so you know the, the main example is obviously the beast giving um, Belle a library <laughs> in Beauty and the Beast massively extravagant but wow yeah it's um <laughs> I think that's the moment a lot of viewers were just there like, Oh lovely <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Um there's there's I think there's other examples of it, but basically it's whenever whenever you, you ha have a character who is giving a gift not for not to elicit any particular response other than because they want to give something to somebody else they care about and it is the right gift it shows that they really understand the person yeah i think to be honest because that's also just a really a, that's a lovely feeling yeah i love buying gifts for people particularly i love seeing something going oh, they'd really like that and then sort of seeing the light in in their eyes yeah you know um that is just oh it's so nice <laughs> and i love that i love that trope um, you, to be honest, I could be watching anything and if there's a moment like that, because to me it's the sign of a moment which shows to another person has really understood, you know, yeah, who, who they're giving the gift to. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, this is one which, again, I've kind of got a, a tiny bit of nigglediness about but I also really really like it yeah and that is that is the the major makeover so you see this <laughs> in pretty much every romantic comedy ever you also see it in Kira Cass's The Selection um The Hunger Games um Princess Diaries mean, yeah Princess Diaries <laughs> it can mean a main character who who gets a new start who overcomes a bad relationship or starts a business um, basically, success and being the best version of yourself is butter because wouldn't we all love to feel like that? Yeah. It's without this... the effort to get there as yeah. well, I think is the thing. Well, this is the thing, like, because for me, it always made me laugh because obviously, in, in like things like The Princess Diaries, the way they do it is just they're like, we're going to take this character and this character who wears glasses and has curly hair. And a brace. And a brace. Um, usually a brace. But the thing is, I have curly hair. I wear glasses. Um, not constantly, but um, I do wear glasses. And all, all I can think of is just they're like, every time they it's just like curly hair equals ugliness. And I'm like, no, because all I could think of is that when I was little, I thought curly hair was the prettiest, most beautiful thing in the world. And I finally got curly hair naturally. When I was about sort of like 11, it just curled naturally. I had bone straight hair and I was like, yay! And then everyone's like, you should straighten it. You'd be so much prettier. And I was so offended. 
<laughs> I just couldn't get it, didn't understand it. And a lot of media was basically saying, oh yeah, this is, you know, this is how it is. And the only way that you can be truly valued is if you have that makeover, which is what I think a lot of people object to. But at the core, the whole makeover trope isn't actually about sort of saying the only way you're acceptable is if you adhere to the way the standard look that we expect, but rather that, let's take Mia uh, from The Princess Diaries, um, her whole thing, it's not about, right, we need, uh, uh, she looks good because of X, Y, Z. She had a high-end makeover, and I think everybody would love the idea of having a stylist who comes in and, and brings out and enhances the best features of you, because these kinds of things are not really available. And I say a stylist, it wouldn't have to be a stylist, but this could be something for, for anything. Someone who comes in and says, hey, I'm going to help you with your cutter or whatever. Uh, whatever, you know, whatever you want to kind of perfect yourself in, but which you don't have the opportunity or time to do. Um, that's very attractive. Yeah, That's a really nice idea. Everybody wants to be made to feel beautiful, and I say beautiful not so much as in the aesthetic terms, but in some way beautiful, special, um, prized, uh, you know, shaped up to the best of your ability. And I think that that's what it comes down to. Yeah, definitely. This is a moment where you get to shine. As I said, it can be about, you know, starting in... I've read any number of cosy mystery things where the, the heroine comes from a bad background and starts a new bakery or something. And it's like, it, it's that success makeover. I'm making a new version of myself, a better version of myself, because I know more now kind yeah. of thing. And it's, it's very noticeable that the, the actual physical makeover thing tends to go hand in hand with stuff like weddings. So like um, the whole Breaking Dawn thing. Because Bella's not really interested in makeup and hair and stuff, but, but Alice wants to play dress-up dolls with her. So. Yeah. <laughs> and it is that effortless, I don't have to put in a lot of like research and watch YouTube makeup tutorials and stuff, and I've just got a best friend who likes doing it anyway, and poof, there we go. I am, I am the most be best accentuated version of myself. It's the effortlessness, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... Everybody wants to be able to look in the mirror and say, wow, you know, to be... Because I think a lot of people are not very happy with what they see in the mirror, um, just when it comes to the physical makeover side of things. So to be able to turn around and feel really pleased by what you see, yeah. uh, I I don't think it's wrong to want that. Yeah, I mean, again, we're looking at sort of the escapist fantasy. Yeah. So. Okay. Uh, the high desirability. <laughs> yeah, this is one that's sort of annoyed both me and Madeline at times, yeah. but I think we can both understand it as well. Yeah, um, this is one where add butter to taste um, definitely holds true. Um, and obviously it also depends on the genre. So some people hate the reverse harem, the love triangle setting. Um, and some people hate that everyone fancies the heroine. Um, in romance, it can often work, however. So, for example, uh, Bridgerton. Bridgerton season one, you obviously had the, se the season's diamond. <laughs> yes, and that that was, you know, once... Okay, <laughs> once I got, got over the sort of, like, it's not supposed to be historically accurate, Jules. You know, 
<laughs> get over yourself. The fact that it was basically a romantic fantasy. Yeah. This this idea of being the most sought after debutante of the season. I can see why that's appealing to a lot of people when they just want to tune in for an hour and escape. And then you've got the fabulous wardrobe and everything with it. Yeah, absolutely. My God, these people have so many clothes. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I can definitely understand why uh, you want that kind of escapism in fiction. Um, and again, does, as it, we've said, it does depend on the genre. Yeah, I mean, it, it wouldn't be appropriate in something like post-apocalyptic fiction, would it? Because presumably you've got better things to think about than, oh, which of my ten suitors shall I give the time of day to today? Yeah. <laughs> um. But I, 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 again, it's definitely one of those people. Some people are really going to like it. Some people are really going to dislike it. Um, and it's a bit of a dividing flavor, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, okay, so siblings reunited. By siblings, I can, you know, it can be sort of like adopted family or um, friends, cousins or friends or whatever. But for whatever reason, you've had to go your separate ways slightly in life and you've kind of lost touch a little bit. And then something happens to throw you together and you reconnect and you're rebuilding this relationship. And I love it. I love it. It's great. <laughs> it's one of my favourite bits. I sound really arrogant saying I've got favourite bits of books I've written. No, but not at all. It's one of my favourite bits in Slice of Death is when Steve has come to the museum and he realises that Rebecca is actually his cousin who he hasn't seen for about 20 years. Yes, I love that. And I love the fact that, yeah, they, they kind of reconnect and they just fall back in as sort of cousins, but becoming closer than they've, they ever were before. Yeah, they, they, they bicker like brother and sister. Like almost constantly. Yeah. And yet they are completely ride or die. Yeah. One hundred percent. I love it. <laughs> um I do have an example of this in some of my stuff, but I'm not gonna talk about it because I um it's you can't. not some I can't talk about it. So <laughs> But um yes, it's one of those ones that I'm also very, very fond of. Yes. Okay, earning parental love, forgiveness, and acceptance. Oh god, this one hurts so good. <laughs> See, I, I, I'm an outsider on this one. This one puts my back up, but I absolutely understand why other people love it, and it's like it's absolutely butter for them, kind of thing. Yeah, um, it's one of these ones where, again, um, if you apply it practically, uh, it's not good. But you can kind of understand um, why it's so attractive. And it also works very well when it's flipped around. So you have a narrative which is all about a character earning the respect or the forgiveness or the acceptance of their parents, only to realise at the end that their parents actually don't deserve their love and devotion. Yeah. And that's probably one of my favourite ways. If it, it doesn't do that, then I kind of go... It's weird, weird yeah, spinning silver... And I've just forgotten what her name is. Um, no, Miriam. D- d- uh, not Miriam. No, um, the the one who the the old maid calls her Dushenka, uh, who becomes um, the Tsarina. Yeah. She's kind of trying to earn like her father's not really 
but there's this whole kind of thing where she sort of is accepted by her father and they have this very complicated relationship um and i felt like it was done very well because they don't feel close no. you know um and there's almost for me reading it there was a bit of contempt because i'm like oh now you're proud of her when you tucked her away <laughs> her yeah, whole life yeah. yeah um but it made for a very interesting dynamic i thought yeah yeah i completely agree with that yeah okay so then there is the lightning bolt insta love um yes it is annoying but people still enjoy the escapism of the fairy tale um the the love at first sight thing yeah i mean it's there's a reason romeo and juliet became one of shakespeare's best known plays isn't there it's not just the tragedy it's that that moment of just knowing that the other person is perfect for you it's an interesting thing because when I was younger, I was so against the concept of love at first sight because I just didn't understand it at all that I I kind of purposefully... I mean, that's the reason why Rufus and Milen obviously don't work out in The Sons of Thestian was because their romance was just too good. Yeah. I, I was literally writing as they had the fairy tale thing, which is that they just always knew that they were for each other. Um and then obviously that doesn't work out because what Rufus ends up with is obviously a relationship that's going to take a long time to build and a lot of trust and difficulty and is based on friendship first and foremost. And obviously not always friendship. There was also, there's also some uh, difficulties with that as well. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> uh, I was always kind of very against the trope and then I started to re-examine it um, in terms of its real life applications because I think that you can look at someone or you can start speaking to someone and get an instant zap. Um, it's not comparable to the love you feel over time or as a relationship develops but I do think it is real that you can suddenly go oh my god um, and I think that we are all very taken by the idea of that happening by just the effortlessness yeah, of just again. seeing someone and just being like, yep, that's me. Tick, tick, tick. No, <laughs> no other box is needed. <laughs> yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. It's the effortlessness of it. Um, and this sort of plays into the whole the true love match, the fated mates thing. It was meant to be. Um, you know it's going to work out because you're meant to be kind of thing. You'd have to really, really screw up in a big way and neither of you are going to do that. Yeah. Yeah, completely agree. Um, and again, it's it's interesting. And what's interesting is that obviously the, the whole fated mates thing um, as a trope is very, very popular. Um, but people have now kind of made it more complicated um, yeah. in order to sort of make it seem even more special, which is we are fated to be together. Our souls are bound up, but sometimes fated people don't actually get on. So what we have is extra special because we are fated to be together, um, but also we actually really like each other. <laughs> so it's extra yeah. special. Um, an example of this is, again, A Court of Thorns and Roses, um, where they talk about the fact that soulmates don't always get on, um, that, that their mate, the mated pair don't necessarily like each other. Like Rhysand's parents were not actually great for each other, but they were mated and it was, you know, it was supposed to be rare and, and 
you know, cauldron blessed, um, but they they didn't actually particularly like each other, and it was very difficult. Um, I think it was also the same for Tamlin's parents as well. Um, so what Feyre and Resand have is supposed to be extra special because of that. Yeah, um, sort of 20, 25 years before A Court of, <laughs> Court of Thorns and Roses series, uh, at least Jane Smith sort of does the same thing in her Nightworld books. And it also shows up in Nalini Singh's Archangel series, which I admit I've only read the first two books of and decided that it wasn't really for me because it was very, very heavy on the romance side of things and I, I got bored. Um, but it's it's definitely there, so... Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's becoming a staple. I think it shows up in the Immortals After Dark things of like we're, you know, the it's the whole sort of the male feels the mating bond thing and perhaps convinces the female it turns out not to have been a great idea. Yeah, <laughs> it's a weird. I can, I'm going to tell you this because you don't know it, and I feel you need to know it. So you're going to love this. Okay. Um, in the in Kesley Cole, uh, Cressley Cole's Immortals After Dark series. Um, you know, it, it's the brides for the vampires and it's, you know, the the fated mates for the werewolves, etc. Et the werewolves are all Scottish, which is hilarious. Great. Um, but with the vampires, basically, they, if they're born vampires, they just grow at a normal uh, rate, etc. And they can go around having sex, etc., drinking blood, blah, 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 all the way up until they hit sort of around between until they hit their immortality time. Now, for a male, that's usually somewhere between 25 and 30. Right. They stop ageing, they go through their... It's almost like a second puberty where they go, they go into being immortal. And at that point, the males stop being able to have erections. Right. So basically, no sex for them until they find their bride. Right. And they generally know their bride, first off, by the fact that their heart literally starts beating again. And second of all, by suddenly having the first direction they might have had in like 500 years. <laughs> and I've, I was reading them and I'm like, well, I feel like I've I've already stacked all my chips on, on you know, black 44 here. So, <laughs> so I can't really complain. But at the same time, I was like, this is such an incredibly weird setup. <laughs> but fine, it's a fated mates type scenario. I've never seen anywhere else. So I'll give you that. I mean that's that's pretty serious, right there. No, not even no sex, but like a no masturbation until you find your. Nothing that's you... not good. They could be seriously out of practice. No one wants to. <laughs> and aside from that, it's kind of like no. I knew you were. To, I knew you were meant to be my bride, for I had an erection for the first time. Kind of thing. It's like, ugh. <laughs> yeah, this is like a oh because my heart started beating. <laughs> It's like, oh, that was so sweet. And I had an erection. Massive erection. (laughs) So, um, yes. Anyway, moving on from that, um, the suffering main character, or minor character even, who overcomes the situation with pluck. I love this. Mm -hmm. I didn't even realise I loved this, but obviously I do. I mean, this this is the Disney Cinderella. Yeah. And this is Cuthbert. Yeah. And this is every... Every you know Oliver Twist is every poor orphan or abandoned and unwanted child or whoever um, who somehow still manages to retain the core of being a really good person. Yeah, I think I got a little bit of this with Joshua. Yeah, 
He's a plucky boy. <laughs> he's going through a lot, but he's a plucky boy. <laughs> and yeah, I agree. Um, you just you just immediately want to cheer for those people, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's Harry Potter to a certain extent as well. Yeah, I agree. Because Harry has no business being as good and kind a person as he is, considering what he essentially learned of life from the Dursleys for the first 10, 11 years of his life. Yeah. Um, and yet he is. Yes. Um, so that's, a, yeah, you're absolutely right that it's a very engaging character trait. Um, on the other side of the spectrum, the obsessed love interest. See, it's one of those ones where you can't help being compelled by the story, even if you feel quietly a little bit guilty that you're compelled by that aspect of the story. <laughs> this is the prince searching for Cinderella. You know, it's instead of sort of like, well, I met her for one night and she's gone and I guess I'll never see her again. But instead going, but I have a shoe. I shall send out all my men searching for the woman who fits the shoe. Yeah, because uh, apparently no two people have the same shoe size. Um... <laughs> but it is that sort of idea. It, it, it's Edward Cullen making his entire life about Bella in, a, in Twilight, which is obviously in real life a very unhealthy dynamic. Incredibly. But it's the story. It, it does, yeah. Um for me, I think, it, again, it's one of those, it depends on the flavour of it. I love the whole Cinderella thing because for me that's someone who, you know, is, is kind of pursuing things um, to, to quite a romantic degree because he obviously he does end up saving her. He comes looking for her. He cares about her. Um, to the, the point where it's like, no, you can't speak to other people. You can't... When that's labelled as romantic that's when I start to go like, actually, the, the I'm kind of being pulled out of the fantasy at this point because it doesn't feel like a fantasy. It just feels creepy. <laughs> yeah, this is another one of those where too much butter is going to turn some people off, whereas other people are just going to be kind of just lapping it up because that's exactly what they want. Yeah. Um, it, I kind of coped with it in A Court of Mist and Fury and then hated it in every subsequent book and it is essentially the same obsessive love yeah it was one of the things that turned me off of twilight i think yeah okay uh so the next one is the starting from nothing i love this 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 does kind of go hand in hand with the suffering main character who overcomes the situation yes um, but yeah, I love people who can start from nothing and instead of going, oh, well, the world owes me a living and having a massive chip on the shoulder. Instead, they put their grit and determination together and they manage to stay true to a, a, a core of goodness. Yeah. And achieve things. I love that. Yeah, I completely agree. We've got some great examples of it. Obviously, uh, Cinderella, though I do feel like traditional Cinderella, she didn't really start from, but yeah, she did, She starts from nothing. Um, Cuthbert, <laughs> obviously. My my boy, my love, Cuthbert. Yeah. Poor Cuthbert. Um, there's a book I will mention a bit later, but Rune in The Lark and the Wren. Um, Menely, that name I have so much difficulty saying, but it's from... Anne McCaffrey's Dragons of Pern, Dragon Riders of Pern series in Dragon Song. She starts off as um, a talented but untrained musician and singer mm -hmm. um, under her father's fishing tribe, where women are supposed to keep to the background and she shouldn't be drawing attention to herself. But she does have this really amazing voice and she would desperately love 
to get some sort of bardic training but her father keeps sort of shoving her back in the corner and it gets to the point where something happens song-wise or music-wise and he has her really severely beaten and she escapes out into the storm and finds these um, fire lizard eggs which hatch and fire lizards imprint on her. She, she, she starts with a really abusive background and somehow with literally nothing except five fire lizards manages to drag her, her way to the bardic harper halls where she talks her way in and gets bard training and it is just that starting from nothing but still staying a good person and eventually getting to a stage where you can contribute something to even save the kingdom kind of thing yeah absolutely i love it to a, to a very very minor degree i touched on that with rufus obviously yeah. Um. Who obviously who broke into the libraries because he just <laughs> like, but I want to read these books. So he I mean, broke into slightly the, more chaotic good. Yeah, yeah, into the forbidden archives because he was just so curious and he got away with it for a long time too. Um. Until he didn't. <laughs> uh, okay. Um. The next one. Uh is pluck rewarded which i think kind of ties in very much with that pluckiness yeah so again with the starting from nothing or the you know the suffering main character um but we do love people who don't shy away from a situation and manage to solve it even if they can't solve it the first time round. Mm. i kind of love it in spinning silver the yeah fact that miriam is faced with some pretty dire stuff and she's not actually the most likable person. She's quite abrasive. Yeah. What I like about her is that she's quite stoic in what she does. She's not unfeeling or absolutely unkind. She's not out to starve other people to death. She just wants what they've been owed. Yeah. And she gets pretty much no support from her, her parents over this at all. Yeah. And I, I just love her intelligence and her grit and the fact that she somehow always manages to turn the situation to silver if you see what i mean yeah absolutely um i do like the fact that yeah a lot of it is intelligence and she does she scrabbles a lot of the way and she's smart and we do see that rewarded um okay uh next one yeah um this is one that i kind of like it depends on the circumstances and the genre but uh it's the missed love connection mm-hmm. and then they have to work together or something throws them together constantly and it can be that you have two characters who have a one night stand and they don't think they'll ever see each other again and then it turns out they've both shown up for new jobs at the same place yes <laughs> if you're going for more contemporary fiction or it can just be a case of two characters were working towards realizing they have feelings for each other and then something happens to get in the way and they're still being thrown together all the time but because something's got in the way they can't actually admit they've got feelings that also you know something is confusing the issue to the point where nobody can really see what's going on yeah nobody inside can see what's going on yeah it's a little bit like the marriage of convenience sort of trope except it's rather we have to work together but we have feelings kind of (laughs) we've been thrown together and we (laughs) Right, we'll work together even though we have complicated feelings. It's like the reverse marriage of convenience trope, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I do really like that one. Um, The next is, of course, competitions. By God, do we love a competition. Yeah, we love (laughs) a Or a sorting of some kind. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's slightly separate, but yeah, a Quidditch match, um, anything where we can cheer for the heroes. 
think of things like the Queen's Gambit, where you've got an unusual skill, or fairly unusual, the, the extreme chess playing. Or, I don't know, did you ever read um, C.S. Packett's Fence graphic novels? I, I find know. graphic novels really difficult to read, but there is this, this series of novels, Fence, which I believe I recommended probably a couple of years ago now, is all based around um, epee fencing at a, a prestigious boys' school, and there's a, a male-male romance going on, and they're pitted oh, against yes. each other with fencing. Yes. And it's just so incredibly compulsive. Yeah, and it's it's quite interesting that in sort of like major franchises, they'll usually have like some kind of competition. Like for example, in Star Wars, obviously you had in the prequels, you had the um, the racing. Yeah. At one point, um, you get that in sort of various um, anime, various series as well. I mean, Hunger Games, obviously, that's one giant horrific competition. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you get a certain amount of it in um, Divergent things as well. Yeah. So yeah, we love anything like that. We are naturally geared as creatures who want to compete on some level. And most of us really tune in when you get that sort of thing. Particularly if we've got characters that we can root for. That's just, that's glorious butter. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the uh, Overcoming parental privilege. Yeah, I really like this one as well. Mm. so this is a you know someone doesn't really especially if the character doesn't know whether they've got where they are because of nepotism or because on the basis of their own merits yeah and they spend that you know a lot of their their journey is is it's greased by this this idea that they have to prove to themselves and everyone else that they deserve to be there yeah absolutely I mean, they they kind of did a little bit of touched on that with um, they kind of set it up with Bridgerton season two, yeah, with Benedict who kind of discovers that he got into the into his art kind of university, his art college, because Anthony put in a large, well, we don't know that he got in for that exactly, yeah. um, but Anthony certainly did give a large donation to the university. And so Benedict suddenly goes, oh, I don't actually know if I'm any good. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a massive drawback for him, isn't it? Whereas yeah. it, was, it was meant as a kindness, but... Yeah. It was meant as a, oh, I'm going to help, I'm just going to help you do this. Um, and it wasn't necessarily meant as a, no, I don't think you can get in on your own merits, but rather just, I don't want you to have to worry about that. I just yeah. want you to have fun. Um, but yes, it just meant that suddenly Benedict had this kind of crisis of, oh, I don't actually know what my worth is in that way. And we love seeing characters struggle to overcome that sort of thing. This is the reverse of the very annoying character who goes, oh, do you know who my father is? Yeah. Kind of thing. Um, something that people generally found very annoying about Draco Malfoy, with good reason, was was his sort of like, yes, well, my family is, is well connected and old, etc. Do you know who my father is? Yeah, the whole it's, yeah. buying the way onto a Quidditch team kind of thing. It's also quite interesting because this one, the overcoming parental privilege, also kind of goes into when a parent is not actually a good figure. So actually, it's sort of moving away from parental heritage as well. I think yeah. kind of yeah, ties into that. Um, okay, uh, the next is the is the comeback kid. <laughs> yeah, um, that is. <laughs> 
I, I love a good comeback kid. This is somebody who basically really drops their ice cream at the beginning in some way. And it's if, if you do it in a way where they're actually a relatively likable character, then everyone is rooting for them to sort of make a big comeback. Yeah. Um, I mean, Neville Longbottoms, I think, is, 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 a, yeah, that's is a pretty a, good comeback a, kid. A classic, yeah. Yeah, someone um, who, who sort of who steps up at the last minute, probably because they've had the support of everybody else. Um, and they and they deal a kind of a finishing blow of some kind. Okay, definitely. Okay, um, the faithful dog character, which sounds awful, but this is this is literally <laughs> someone who's potentially big and fierce, but you've got their loyalty, and you know that they they will it, it, they're completely ride or die. So once again, it's the the Gregory Maudsley type thing. Yeah. What's interesting is that. Um, this is a great kind of character trope um and sometimes it, it can then be used uh, kind of like as an attack so for example you have the hound in um game of thrones who should fall within that trope and who's treated like he falls within that trope he's my big faithful dog he will do whatever i say but he doesn't actually have any real loyalty to joffrey at all he doesn't give a damn about Joffrey. Yeah, he's fulfilling kind of like an archetype, as it were. Um, and another thing I love about this trope is the way that you can have you have the big faithful kind of character. This is the also you have it, it's like the little John, you know, the best mate, um, and how that can kind of develop just from being a side character to actually being a core part of the sort of. Um, the group but someone you know has always got your back so jean in uh the lies of Locke lamora who is very much his own character but little john and robin hood as well you can trust him to always have robin's back yeah etc and another favorite example for me is amos from the expanse series um amos is basically a sociopath he doesn't really feel things the same way other people does he admits that but once you've got his loyalty, he's in there. He, he'll kill someone as soon as look at them if, if you say so. Yeah. And I don't know what... I, I don't know why I love that about him as a character, but it's... I just find the directness of it really refreshing, I think. The case <laughs> of, you're never wondering what this guy's thinking or if he's going to stab you in the back, because he'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, um... Next one, uh, the Slay All Day Wonder Goddess. <laughs> yeah, this is someone who somehow manages to do everything really, really competently and look amazing whilst doing it. Yes. Um, so, yes, Nina from uh, Six of Crows, or actually Faye from Marsha's <laughs> Certainly, Certainly in the first book, it's kind of like, okay, she's really put together and seems to be really competent. <laughs> there's lots to live up to there this is one of those ones where you can actually just really enjoy it from from a, a nice reclined position as it were yeah absolutely um i know i completely agree uh it's one of those ones again though if you if you too much butter then it becomes a bit of a mary sue character and that starts to just be a little bit annoying um yeah which well, i hope has not been the case but yes definitely <laughs> Um, I mean, to be honest, there's a little bit of that with Rebecca, with Bex, yeah, and Harker and Blackthorn. <laughs> yeah, she is very, very much a slay all day wonder goddess with some serious flaws. Um, yes. You get a little bit of it with Grace as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
created families. Oh. Yeah, we've talked a lot about found families. Um, it's both a trope and a theme in this yeah. respect. As a theme, it's obviously definitely butter because we all like the idea that we could... I mean, you can't actually choose your actual family. Um, but the idea of being able to choose a family that is perfect for you is really compelling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just And having people who genuinely care about you and whom you genuinely care about... Um, I think it's just wonderful and people just love it particularly if they're quirky and a bit weird because I think that that's kind of how we feel about our friendship groups even if those friendship groups don't last forever in the moment you know they're very important definitely okay um opposite world or nightmare world conversely this is the thing where you get the two you know the idea of this this lush huge fantasy world on one hand or this absolutely terrible it's like our world but everything's gone horribly wrong yeah. Um, both of those things are really compelling. So Bridgerton, for example. Now, is that the... the horror version for you? Or... <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the sort of opposite world, because it's, it's basically fantasy Regency England, isn't it? Yes. It and is. Certainly if we're talking about the series, I'm not really talking about the books. Um, on the or, or Outlander, again, the idea of you know going back to this historical time period and having this great romance, and it's all very detailed and everything, um, to a certain extent Harry Potter as well. Yep. And then on the opposite side, you've got The Walking Dead. Yes. <laughs> Game of Thrones to a certain extent as well. Um, and anything like that. So anything with a huge immersive world. Again, that's that's all butter. That's really compelling. Yes. Um, the next one is obviously inclusion. Yeah. So what they did with Bridgerton, for example, where it was largely blind, blind casting, even if they did have a, a weird little explanation in the first season. But yeah, the the idea of let's let's keep it open let's have let's have um some of our characters be this or that or the other as well um more people will be drawn to reading it if you if you're more open i yeah. did not explain that well at all no i think i think the big thing is that essentially something that kind of particularly if you've got kind of this whole of the world is characters will be drawn to it if they feel like or rather characters people will be drawn to it if they feel like i could fit in with this world too yeah, that's what I was trying to say. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Very nice thing. Um, the, the identity quiz. This is huge. Yes. Um, we all love the idea of being told something about ourselves that we didn't really know and thinking, oh, I'm special. I belong to this. So it's the whole, the sorting hat with the Hogwarts houses, the districts yeah. in the Hunger Games, the alignments and divergent demons in his dark materials where your demon and the shape it finally settles on at puberty tells you what sort of person you are on the inside yeah um i mean and it just doesn't surprise me people will say oh my demon is this uh my hogwarts house is this etc i mean yeah. we just we love it anyway <laughs> i'm this game of thrones house exactly it's 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 this you know the the buzz the buzz feed um <laughs> <laughs> quiz which uh <laughs> which one do you belong in and i mean like even i've done this i actually put quizzes together to tell people what star they'd be born under in the yeah. hamartia cycle um or what their night patrol form would be um and yeah we just we want to know don't we <laughs> yeah yeah definitely um knowing animals yeah, I remember when I was writing Revolt, one of yeah. the things I tweeted was, I've given this horse way too much character, but everyone loved it. So it was fine. 
seriously, yes. Um, <laughs> I loved, I loved his horse. <laughs> I love the fact that we also got a little nod to what happened to his horse in the second book. I'm like, is he okay? He's okay. He's living his best retirement life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, animals as as people, but also, I mean, this is kind of like the demons in his dark materials as well, because they are yeah. kind of animal companions. Yeah. You don't have to have a talking animal companion. You just have to have an animal that the characters feel is like a person, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, food, glorious food. Now, this is particular for children's fiction. You cannot have children's fiction. And to be honest, you can't really have fantasy without one good, at least one glorious feast or one kind of one talk about food like it's at the heart of everything <laughs> yeah absolutely and you know obviously harry potter the chronicles of narnia although admittedly i've not read those for many years now um but also things like studio ghibli and anime yeah. in general the, the food in anime studio ghibli they just they they just set out to make food look like the most amazing thing in the world yeah. like they they captured the mood of food in the way that they they draw it because food never actually looks that good but the whole sensation of seeing and smelling food they capture it in the pictures don't they yeah they it really looks do. so amazing <laughs> and okay final example that we've got today rules secrets and scandals so one of the things that makes jane austen so enduring is this idea obviously you've kind of got the opposite world thing going on where it's not like how we live now Mm -hmm. But also it, there's all these rules and things that are baked into this society that you have to be very careful not to break. Um, there are secrets and things going on. There are scandals. It, it's kind of why there's this entire spin-off of Regency romance. It's why Bridgerton's so popular. I mean, yeah. think of the whole Lady Whistledown thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's it's just I love rewatching Pride and Prejudice, the the BBC version, even though I've yeah. seen it a million times because it's just they're like oh, the scandal. <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, she she was caught talking to him in the rain. My goodness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so uh, in summation, this is obviously not an exhaustive list. Um, just some of the most common ones and honestly yeah for the most part if you have a book which has at least a couple of these in it regardless of the genre I'm gonna probably be interested um, provided I like the characters uh, because these things are just so tasty these tropes these ideas these themes are just so good so delicious that I will see the ingredients on the menu and i will go i've never tried that but i'm gonna give it a go yeah absolutely um and you know you can layer it in there it's no substitute for actually writing a well-structured story with great characters but adding this in will give it extra flavor definitely yeah um anyway from here think about your favorite films and books and think about the really really popular bestsellers and things of the last 10 20 years um think about the things that you return to again and again especially when you want a comfort read mm. what is and see if you can identify what the butter is that makes you keep coming back yes um, and why things may have taken off we've obviously talked about some popular things like harry potter and his dark materials etc um 
but yeah there's lots of runaway successes out there and what you'll find is yes well they did hit a niche that was underserved also they've also got all this butter in there yeah um do let us know what some of your favorite uh buttery ingredients are from the list that we've talked about were there any that you were thinking oh my god yes i really love that and were there any that you were thinking oh god i hate that uh remember you can get in contact with us via our facebook our tumblr and our twitter both individually or through the dissecting dragons pages uh before we go it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and jules i think you have got one for us yes i received an arc of mercedes lackey's first book in the bardic voices series the Lark and the Wren. This is basically a reprint of a, a series that was published some t- many, many decades ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're releasing an audiobook, so I got an audio arc. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed this return to a slightly older version of fantasy. It follows Rune, um, an illegitimate girl who grows up in an inn and has some talent with the violin and dreams of becoming a bard. Apparently I really like bard type stories. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, she has quite an abusive type upbringing and it's the plucky character who overcomes everything with sheer grit. Um, And her journey is just a series of little adventures in this. There's elves and gods and ghosts and um, there's a little romance in there as well. And it's just great. It's a great, if you want to get back to sort of classic a fairly low stakes fantasy then absolutely go for this because it is just great fun i really enjoyed it okay that just sounds brilliant so i will definitely check that out um as to you guys thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye you've been listening to dissecting dragons the speculative fiction podcast you can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.